All right, guys, good to see you. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> Begin our study this morning in verse 35. Luke 12, 35. <clears throat> As you probably noticed, the context here is uh, especially dealing with disciples and discipleship, and then especially in this particular section, he is emphasizing being ready uh, for the Lord's return. Uh, when you look back at uh, verse 22 down to verse 31, the emphasis on not being anxious about this life, but then beginning in verse 32, get ready for the following life. So don't, don't put concentration in this life, but then move on. And as a disciple, you're looking forward uh, to the life to come. You're not, not too worried, anxious. You're not anxious about what's going on in this life. That's going to all be taken care of by the Lord. And so we're just getting, getting our, uh, our, ourself ready for the next. So that's where we'll begin then in, uh, in verse 35. <clears throat> A lot of interesting things that are in this section, but just primarily key main points each time. So let's begin a class with prayer. Father, thank you for blessing us today, blessing us with some rain this morning. Thank you for caring for us and watching over us. We pray that you'll help us today to concentrate on you and on our future with you and to be able to get prepared for that. Please continue to forgive us of our sins, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's take a look at this section from 35 down through verse 40. He says, stay, <clears throat> stay dressed for action, ESV, and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known <clears throat> at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All right, a lot of uh, uh, little um, words here, uh, parabolic uh, things here, and uh, uh, words that have some first century meaning that are more difficult to transfer to today. I would like you to notice in verse 35 that the phrase, stay dressed for action, uh, you see if you're looking at your marginal reading, you notice what the margin says there. The Greek is, let your loins be girded. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> uh, a modern person probably, especially some of you're studying with, wouldn't know what that meant. Uh, so uh, that's why in the more modern English versions, it just says, stay dressed for action. Uh, in those days, long robes, things like that, as most of you, I believe, know, uh, a person would reach down, grab the backside of their robe, pull it up, stick it into their belt, so they would have um, 
kind of like our knee shorts today, and they would uh, tuck it right in there, and so they could run and not trip on their skirts, <laughs> not, not fall down, and, and they were dressed for action. They were ready to go, and so that's uh, that's the idea. Uh, I always wish that the uh, translators would put the gird up your loins in the text, and then the explanation in the bottom, uh, but. That's that's just the way it goes. They're trying to write it so that uh, somebody who doesn't know anything about first century would understand in that way. So you you, you get that. So everything is about action here. What what are some of the things that you notice in the text then that are really important here that we would want to uh, we want to bring up to someone we're teaching. <clears throat> Okay, there's an urgency here. This is really, really important uh, to wait for his return. Good. What else? <laughs> okay, it's always is it, be prepared. Uh, and what do you? Wh why do you have to be so prepared in this text? Pardon. Yeah, you don't know when he's coming, and so that's the that's the big deal. In fact, he mentions the second or third watch of the night. Uh, so that would run from about 9 a.m. to about 6, uh, 9 p.m. to about 6 a.m. So it's that night watch that comes and uh, uh, most of us, <laughs> that's, that's a hard time to watch because you're, you're, you're tending to go to sleep. And of course, he's not saying don't, don't literally go to sleep. He's saying don't go to sleep as spiritually, you need to be always ready here because you do not know when he's going to he's going to return. Okay, what else would you see here? Yeah. What's the wedding? Yeah, as a he's he's coming back from a wedding feast. So the the master has gone to the wedding feast. This is a different kind of analogy here. This is a different kind of parable. Usually, like with the parable of the ten virgins over in Matthew 25, uh, you have the situation where you have the bride, bridegroom's party, if you will, the, uh, those who are waiting to usher him to the wedding feast. In this case, he's returning from the wedding feast and coming back home. So he's gotten his bride, apparently, he's gone to the wedding feast, etc., and he's now returning home. These are servants, these are the ones, they weren't part of the wedding feast necessarily. You can't take a parable too far, remember. Uh, there's a main point here, and, and everything else is decorative, so to speak. So they're coming back, and the servants need to be ready for him to return and come back so they can open the door to him and serve him and take care of him. So in that case, he's picturing the rest of us as his servants waiting for him to return. Of course, He's talking about his Jesus' actual return. He's gone into heaven. He's he's uh, that's that's the picture. He's coming back. Are you ready for his return? Is the idea. So, what's unusual about when he re comes in and returns and finds them doing what they should do? Be ready. He serves them. He serves them. Okay, they're going to remind you of uh, Jesus. 
washing the feet of the disciples. He serves them. What a, what a interesting flip that is. He is so pleased with them being watchful and ready for him that when he comes in, instead of them serving him, he turns and serves them. And so there, there's a really cool picture of that. So if we're teaching someone, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to want to really stress in this section the importance of being ready. You might want to talk about what that means and, and what that readiness is going to imply, the obedience to the Lord, the watchfulness for the Lord's return. And this is really good for us too. Oh, when's he going to come? I don't know. So don't get lazy. You know, don't, don't start thinking, oh, well, you know, it won't be today or tomorrow, so I can goof off. Um, it is just interesting that, you know, we, people live their whole lives and he doesn't return. But of course, uh, as we have often said, there's, there's two options here. Either return or you die and you see him anyway. <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to face him both ways and you don't know either one of those. You don't know the day in which either one of those is going to happen. So you have to always then be ready. Okay? All right. I think anything else in, in that section? All right. Just like a, he gets to the end, another little parable, just like a thief uh, coming, you're always prepared and ready just in case he's going to try to break in. So I, I don't know about you, but when I go to bed at night, I go around and check all the doors. I do different things like that. Uh, I don't know. Is somebody going to break in tonight? Hope not, but uh, you never know. So you, you do everything you can uh, to get ready. Pull out my machine gun and... No, I don't have one of those. I'm just <laughs> Do you think that someone uh, would ask what the Son of Man means? Sure, always. Yeah, yeah. And so, and those are things we've probably hit that before, before we got to the section, but that's right. And, and by the way, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because... When you think Son of Man, the easiest way to remember how to explain that is Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And that, that, so you might just turn over there to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. This is, anytime you see Son of Man referring to Jesus, uh, this is the, this would be the primary place where the uh, average Jew would go uh, in order to understand that, or of course a believing Jew. Uh, Daniel 7 and verse 13 and 14. This, uh, of course, a, a explanation of a vision that Daniel has received concerning the coming kingdom of the Lord and uh, the kingdoms that are on the earth. So Daniel 7 verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Okay, the son of man is going in what direction here? Did say care? Yeah, he's going up to the ancient of days. And the ancient of days is... God, all right? He's the oldest person you know. <laughs> no, don't say, so, see, so you can't call me that. Uh, you can call Bob that, but you can't call me that. Uh, ancient of days. So he's going to God, all right? And he's presented before him, all right? So when would that have been? 
when did the when did the son of man go to with the clouds of heaven to god yeah at the ascension after the crucifixion and his ascension into heaven right so when he ascends into heaven he goes with the clouds you know luke's account in acts pictures Jesus, from earth's point of view, leaving and going with the clouds and going toward heaven. Whereas Daniel sees it from, the, from heaven's point of view, the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, coming with the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And when he arrives, verse 14 says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one will not be destroyed. So you might remember that in Acts 1, right after the apostles see the ascension, then 40 days later when, uh, when the day of Pentecost comes, what do they proclaim? Jesus is sitting on the throne. He's now reigning. Well, that's exactly what Daniel said would happen. When he came there, he would be presented a kingdom, and he would reign forever and ever. And that's what then Paul, uh, I mean Peter, uh, explains then in Acts chapter 2. Okay, so son of man is, is a, is, you know, son of man used in the Old Testament is used concerning Ezekiel too, as one who brings the message of judgment to Israel. So there's that part of that too, but when it's referring to the Messiah, you, you want to just go back. The easiest place to go is just Daniel 7, 13, and 14 here. Makes a connection. Any questions about that? Everybody got that? Okay. So he, he is of man, but of God, and comes to save his people, is the idea. All right. Anything else then on 35 through 40? Any other questions or comments there? <clears throat> All right, go on on. Peter now asks a question, verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? <laughs> so you're talking just to us here or are you referring to everybody? Is this, uh, this, this universal or are you just warning us? Uh, that's an interesting question Peter has here. We don't see that in any of the other gospel accounts, but he's, he's wondering how that is. And Jesus doesn't say yes to all. He just gives, the, gives some more instruction, which is evident, yes, it is to all. So verse uh, 42, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food in the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what, was de what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Notice, uh, first off, 
there are three classes of people here that he mentions. He first has, in this first section, the manager. He's the one who seems to be over others. He was supposed to take care of everything while the master is gone. So he's the manager. And then you just see when you get to, uh, get to verse 47, and then you see a servant, a servant who knew his master's will, and he doesn't get ready. And so he's beaten with many stripes. And then you see a servant who, who did not know, and he, but still deserves stripes, and he's beaten with few. So there, there you have the, these three categories of people. So how does that answer Peter's question? Is this just us or everybody? It's obviously everybody. Maybe the manager, part of it is referring especially to his apostles and those who are other leaders, maybe shepherds in a church or something like this. Uh, they are supposed to care for the rest of the servants. All right? Comments? Questions here? Yes? Was that last statement you said? Jesus is coming. You better look busy. Again. <laughs> be genuine. Yes. Right, and that and, that, and that's a good good uh, good observation. There's a genuineness that's respect that that needs to be respected here concerning the coming of the master. Are you really, do you really care about the master's goods, about what the master has asked you to do? Do you really care about those things? And uh, if you don't care, then the tendency is to do what these others did, uh, and they're going to be judged. So overall, what would you say is one or two primary points here? One is that all of the people face judgment. Good. So there's not there's not some class that's been given special knowledge, like the manager of the house, who when when the master comes, he just points at all the other people and says, "Wow, look at these terrible servants," <laughs> and, and, that, and then that person or that group is is somehow absolved of their own judgment. Good. Um, and then the, the second item I think is. Um, contrary to potentially at minimum Jewish belief and at maximum maybe some of ours sometimes is um, the closer you are to the master the harsher your judgment the farther away from the master you are the less you know of the master's will the, the, the less judgment there is there's still judgment yeah. but the harshness of the judgment increases with your knowledge of the master. Yeah. And that, that's, a, that's an interesting part of this because 
uh, you do see, I think that is the second big point, you do see uh, this judgment based on what a person has been entrusted. That's the last words he gives in verse 48. Uh, when he says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. So that seems to be the, you draw a line and, and sum it all up. That seems to be his summation there. If you've been entrusted much, God's going to demand more. If you haven't been entrusted that much, then there might be a different way that God goes about and, and looks at that. So obviously, someone would probably ask what question about, especially when you look at 47 and 48. Why would I want to be a believer? <laughs> yeah, you just have a little bit of hell forever. Although I understand the severity of those that know God, my point, my observation is that everybody, that Christians and non-Christians alike, Christians who are not ready and non-Christians who are not ready, are going to end up in the same place, yes. suffering the same punishment. Yeah, yeah, and and whether or not you know it, when God talks about gives parables about heaven, like the talents, you know, or the better yet, Luke nineteen, the parable of the pounds, which is similar to the talents, but the parable of the pounds, He says those who the one who got uh, who who doubled from two to or got from two to five talents or so, uh, pounds, well, he'll I'll put you over five cities. And the one who got 10, I'll put you over 10 cities. Uh, and there's other parables that give that kind of flavor, which makes you wonder, is there going to be different whatever in heaven? We're going to ask that question. We'll be asking that question again when we get to uh, uh, Luke, Luke 16 and the parable of the unjust steward. Uh, how they handled the possessions here will determine how they will handle the heavenly possessions. There's a number of things like that which we just kind of scratch our head and go, what does that mean? And we're maybe might be more like David. I'd just soon be a doorkeeper in the house of God as, as to anything else. I don't care. Just let me be there. But in this is the other side of the coin, like Dante's Inferno, uh, that you have these, uh, these levels of hell or levels of punishment depending on uh, where you uh, were in this life. I think it's really hard to answer those questions, especially because he's trying to get a main point across. He's not necessarily trying to say, well, you know, there's going to actually be different punishments. Though that wouldn't surprise me at all. Go ahead, Ed. But I, I think, again, it's important to talk about this concept in the, the scheme of this chapter or this section. It's, I don't believe he's making a point to non-believers that you should just stick with your non-belief. <laughs> Instead, I mean, he starts out this whole <clears throat> chapter and a half, like 150 verses or something so far. He's been condemning the Pharisees and how they have approached the people, how they've approached their faith. And I think, I don't, I don't think that this section is necessarily um, focused on talking to people who are uh, right with the right. Lord. Instead, this is making certain that the Pharisees, who he's been condemning, if they see themselves as the managers of Israel, yeah, 
You're in well, trouble. What's coming, buddy? <laughs> you guys have been treating people poorly. And when you treat exactly. people poorly, the father, the manager, or the, the, the owner of the house is going to treat you the same way. If you don't see yourself as a manager, Mr. Fairsey, that's cool. But if you see yourself as certainly as one who's been blessed with the oracles of knowledge of God, more than those that don't know him, that's fine too. You're also going to be judged a lot. Yeah. Like, you jokers are not going to escape judgment simply because you, you know, wear phylacteries and have special hats. Good. Um, here's a question that often comes up when you're teaching someone, uh, especially might be reading this particular text. Well, what's going to happen to those people who uh, never heard about Jesus? You know, that's, that's often a question that is asked, and, and you need to be prepared to answer it. Uh, so what would be maybe, a, a, there, I, I think of two things that I would say. But what would you say? Somebody said, well, uh, what about people? Of course, none of us ever met anybody that way, but, but uh, uh, not, not going to deny that there haven't been an art. Oh, well, good. Okay. So there's lots of people. There's lots of people. Yeah, you go over the right places, and, and, and that's exactly right. Uh, at, at any rate, you know, so you have somebody who asked that question. What about people who never heard about uh, Jesus, Japan uh, has extremely. God is, God is a righteous judge, and He'll judge him according to His what He wants to judge him. Like yeah, that, that's. I think that's the first thing that you go to. You always say, "God is the judge." We don't have answers to those things specifically as to how he will handle judgment on each person. In this text even, God is the one who's deciding who is the servant who gets this or gets that. So we're going to leave that with God. Now, I will oftentimes say to somebody, you know, who's, <laughs> who brings this kind of thing up, I will say just what Brian said. God is the judge. God loves people more than anybody else. God will do what's right. He will do the right thing. We can trust that. Uh, he'll do anything better than you or I would judge or do better, so we can leave that in his hands. But the bottom line is we know you and I are not in that category. And I always bring it right out of that. You don't want to go to that pasture. Let's get over here to what we're dealing with. You and I are not in that category. You know what the Lord is saying. And if someone said that, if someone were to try to make this other judgment, well, everybody who never heard about Jesus is just going to be saved. Well, all right, then the best thing to do is stop preaching the gospel. <laughs> do not go into all the world and try to make disciples. Do not try to get, ignorance will be bliss. Shut it down, burn the Bibles, do everything you can so that nobody will ever know because then you've got a shoe in. That probably would be easier to do than trying to convert the world <laughs> to Jesus. Plus, the, there's a third point here. If that were so, then Jesus going to the cross to save mankind seems to be a waste of time and, and certainly a, a, a worthless effort on his part. He could have just not told anybody about God and uh, then, then go at it from that angle. The problem is, and this is, here's the fourth point, the problem is Jesus did not come to the earth 
in order to condemn people. We see that in John 12. People were already condemned. We see that in John 3. <laughs> over and over. God so loved the world, the famous text, that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Because the world is in darkness and they are already condemned. If the world is already condemned, Jesus came as the, as, as the, um, the remedy for their sin and their condemnation. So you're already condemned. That's the problem. And God has come to solve that problem. I, I will a lot of times use the analogy like when I was in India. People get malaria. I, I have burned in my mind my translator who I asked him one day. We were driving for quite a distance. And I said, uh, uh, Brother Stanley, have you ever had malaria? He says, oh, yes, sir. I said, well, did you go to the doctor? Or you don't? Oh, no, sir. I said, well, it, it, people, I see people getting bit by mosquitoes. Do you ever, do you ever put uh, any kind, anything on your skin or, you know, anything like that so you don't get bit? Oh, no, sir. Uh, well, uh, he says, the strong live, the weak die. That's it. He says, the people are poor. The strong live, the weak die. I'm strong. So far. <laughs> I mean, that's how he looked at it. And that's how the Indians just, that's how they, they approach that. Uh, so what if we found the absolute cure to malaria? I mean, it's just a simple cure that didn't cost anything. We went over to India and went, Come and just, you, you just, we can solve all of that problem. You, you can get a vaccine, which they don't have, but you can get a vaccine for malaria. You will never get it if you get this vaccine. Do you know not everybody would come and get it? And so somebody comes up and says, you're condemning the world by that vaccine. You're saying we're all going to die of malaria. You're, you're just going to... No, no, you're already going to die. If you get it and you're not strong enough to overcome it, you're already going to die. We're coming as the one who is saving. That's what Jesus is doing. You're already, you're already infected. You've already got sin, and sin leads to death, and I've come to save you from it. I've got the vaccine. It's the gospel. So that's the analogy you want to work with people, starting with what Brian said, I think is most important. Judgment is God's business, not ours. But what has been revealed to us is this. The gospel is the only way that you can avoid condemnation. And you know. So that usually gets them off that pretty quickly. People always, they love to try to rationalize and excuse themselves for, for, for a situation that doesn't even apply to them. <laughs> you, you just, you'll see that a lot of times and you have to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whatever happens in that situation is not your situation. <laughs> so you have to get back to that. Okay? It's like, well, what if you're on your way to be baptized and lightning strikes you and you drop dead? You know, what if? I don't know what if, and we don't do what ifs, but that isn't you. We're right here. <laughs> and if that happens, God will take care of that. We don't have to worry about it. So it's always, as old Brother Turner said, and I've mentioned many times, don't whittle on God's end of the stick and uh, just 
Just leave that be. All right? So important things that, that come up here uh, with that. Let's go on to verse 49. Uh, Jesus adds to this now and prepares them again for what's coming on the earth. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. From now, uh, for from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so uh, you, you, you take that little section here. Obviously, you know, people have been singing Christmas songs for a long time from Luke chapter 1, peace and good tidings <laughs> to the earth. I, I don't ever remember the actual words of the song, but peace and good tidings and all that to the earth. And, uh, and now he says, I didn't come to bring peace. How would you explain that? What, what's the difference? Okay. Yeah. The peace in this case is between what is in, yeah, man and God. So in that case, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And as soon as Christ is preached on the earth, there's going to be people who push back, who are going to get angry. And, and you know, it's interesting here. He doesn't say that they're going to accept this casually. Uh, we have a little difference. No, they're going, to, they're going to be angry about it, and they're going to fight back about it, and there's going to be division that's going to be caused. And in probably some of the families, uh, some of your families, uh, you might have those who are that way. And, uh, and so there's, it, it, it doesn't bring peace uh, to the earth. And, and you notice how Jesus says, I've come to bring fire. <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? I've come to to make this powerful statement about salvation is only one way, and it's through me. And that is going to bring fire on the earth. So that's, that's really the idea there. Any other things you see here that you think are important? An admission, an admission the obvious. People are going to disagree. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, people are going to, yeah, you need to expect that. And that's, that's, see, this is such a good point because when you're, when, when you're teaching the average person, they just can't figure this out. If this is just, if this is just the book and we're supposed to follow it, why is everybody going cuckoo? <laughs> why didn't everybody just do this? And, and it's a very challenging for them to understand why there just isn't this uni unification all over. Well, because we have Satan and we have people who don't want to do that. That's right. And, and, and they get upset when their position has been uh, called wrong. And that's what Jesus did. He came to the earth and he says, everybody else is wrong. I'm right. <laughs> and I'm dying for your sins. And this is the only way you can be saved. You've got to come to me. And that's what, that's what he did. And people get angry about that. And we see that, of course, today. John, you said from the beginning, 
people have seen God, seen what God has directed and stood for and asked, and they have pushed back and resisted. So this isn't new. It's not new that people have resisted Christ. It has been that way since literally the beginning. Yeah. And people can have God's manifestation in front of them and still push back and say, I refuse. I refuse to do what you're right. saying. That's right. And and, uh, and and like you said, from the beginning, it's a really good answer. I hadn't thought of using it that way, but that's a really good answer. Because right in the beginning, uh, Cain refuses to worship God properly. And he gets mad about it when God doesn't accept him, and he kills Abel. Uh, Satan tried to get, he, he put in Eve's mind rationalization. Let's just, you know, let's take what God said and let's just rationalize this a little bit. You're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. So people do that as well. There's a hundred different reasons why people are going to choose to go another direction. Well, uh, there's literally nothing that we all know is right or appropriate that we all do. <laughs> yeah. like, everyone in this room knows yeah. we should eat less, we should exercise more. <laughs> Every one of us at times, sometimes don't, some of us, don't, the longer, <laughs> don't do reject that guidance. We all know that we should, in school, we should do our homework, we should work hard, we should pay all of our bills on time, we shouldn't spend more money than we have, we should save for retirement. Like, there's, there's literally hundreds of decisions that we make on a regular basis where there's essentially zero debate about what the best or most appropriate thing to do is. And all of us, throughout our day, make decisions that go against natural, conventional, regular understandings of what we should and shouldn't do. And you know, tomorrow we plan to do better. Then yeah. tomorrow comes. And so like the, this concept that because, because Jesus or the, the Lord is so important, that we would all immediately see and immediately do exactly what we should, um, it, it goes against every other example we have of human decision-making. That's right. In Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Man's a Verdict, he has a great, I can't remember what, where he says this into one of the chapters, uh, but he said, you, you always have to remember a person who decides not to believe it is not a result of a lack of evidence. It is a result of the will. It is the result of I want to do something else and my desires, I want to fulfill those desires and I do not want to do this over here. Now they may on the surface throw all kinds of mud on the wall about why they, why they think it's not right or whatever else, but that's a rationalization. The real problem is not the evidence. That's not the problem. And, and, and you know what? The, when we get to Luke 15 and the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that's exactly what was said by, in the parable by Abraham to the rich man. The rich man said, well, if, but if someone rose from the dead, my brothers would repent. And the, Abraham said, no, they won't. <laughs> If they have Moses and the prophets, they will not, be, and do not believe because of that. They will not believe even if they saw someone rise from the dead. And we know that because in John 12, they saw Jesus rise, I mean, they saw Lazarus rise from the dead. And what did they do? They determined they needed to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. <laughs> so that's hard for us to accept. That's really, we just think if we just, if we just gave them the right information, 
That's all it's going to take. They will repent and they will change. No, they won't. I've given the same information to two different people separately. One of them just goes, this is the greatest thing ever, and become Christians and still are. And the other one goes, I just don't see it. <laughs> okay, Danny. Well, it's when Jesus was on the cross and it came to him and said, if you get down now, yeah. we'll believe you. No, they wouldn't have. Would. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't have. That's exactly right. Look how many miracles they'd seen him give, and he did. <laughs> he raised Lazarus from the dead. They didn't believe it. You know? So, yeah. So that's never going to go away. Never. That's right. That's right. Another, for me, a really important principle in the, in the scriptures is what peace means in the scriptures. And he defines it here pretty well. It is not bringing peace among men on earth. Um, yeah. That's not going to happen. Because right. there's always going to be some of the difference of opinion. So then what peace does he bring? The peace that he's talking about that he brings through his crucifixion and resurrection is peace with God. Yeah. And that's the peace we all want. It's the peace we should all want. Should all want. Um, and that's if I the... don't have peace with God, guess what my alternative is? Right. I have God's wrath. There's yeah. only two things. Two things. Wrath or right. peace. And, and I want peace with God. And so he brings peace with God, not peace on earth. Yeah. And, and, and I think when people get mis they misconstrue the outcome of God's mission through Jesus, that all would be united and the earth would be bliss and we would all have peace with each other. Yeah. That's that, not going to happen. That's going to be heaven. That's right. It's not going to happen on earth. And if there's ever going to be any peace, it's going to be in a triangular way. You can have peace with God, which is going to make you have peace with one another. We can have peace with some. Some, but, it's, but if, as long as there's people who aren't going to obey. And, of course, there's a philosophy even by a minority today that says, well, here's how we're going. Well, and always has been. Um, I mean, I think this is what uh, Hitler was doing. Well, if we kill enough of the people who we don't like, uh, then we'll all get along and there'll be peace. <laughs> yeah, sure, you can do that. <laughs> Just kill everybody that, you know, Stalin, all of these ding-dongs who thought they could do, you know, well, we'll just kill enough people who don't so join on our side, and then we'll have the perfect empire. Mm. Could you? I just think it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to dwell on the words he has a baptism to be baptized with. He's willing to immerse himself in yep. suffering for us to bring us to the true Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it is, it is interesting how, you know, I have this baptism, be baptism, and oh, I wish it were accomplished. <laughs> I'm sure he was saying that more from the standpoint, I wish it was accomplished so that all of this could get going as much as it would be, I wish it were over with. But uh, certainly, uh, that, that's what he's looking for. Yeah, exactly. But it, it, this again, by the way, another point here, just before we're, we're out of time, another point here is you will often be studying with somebody who has family who aren't going to like what's going to happen if they repent. And I've had that many times. Some I've been able to still get past that. Others have not. I have many times where I've had a person go, I see it, but... I just, I, I, and, you know, next study I have with them, they go, I called my mom and said, how would you feel about me 
switching from the religion you raised us in. And she, she went berserk. And so I'm not going to do it. You know, okay, well, you're, you're dealing with this right here. So good. Thanks for great comments. Uh, really, really good. We'll pick up there then next week.